Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to our monthly live stream Q&A right after Thanksgiving. It is a great honor to be with you guys once again, and I'm usual and joined by my lovely wife and co-host, Sarah fowler Arthur. <laughs> and we are not joined at the moment by the three new children we've just brought in the household who also gave me a great welcoming gift of a cold, so I'm a little bit raspy today. And um, we'll talk about that more later on, but just excuse me as an apology in advance if I'm a little bit uh, raspy as we go through the day. And to our children watching with Grandma, hi! <laughs> be good, be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> So it's kind of a test run to see if we can successfully have them. They are young, so they are probably very tempted to make noise, but they are hopefully going to be well behaved. They'll be good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, let's kick it off here with a question. We have a super chat from Dara Cloak. Mm-hmm. How far out in the universe do you think that humans will ultimately travel before cosmic inflation puts an end to further expansion? Um, you know, there's a lot of good and bad answers to that one. The problem is that uh, it all depends on how big you can make your spaceships, how fast you can make them. Loosely speaking, uh, and don't quote this number exactly, it's just the one I've stuck in my head, you have about a 7% of light speed expansion for every billion light years between you and an object at the moment. So if you would launch a spacecraft in a galaxy that's a billion light years away, and you're going 7% of light speed, you will never, ever get there. Even at 8%, you're really going to get there at the equivalent of 1% of light speed, and that's going to take you 100 billion years. So you could say, well, if I'm leaving at 99% of light speed, I should get 13 billion light years away, which is not that big a chunk of the universe. That's maybe like a hundredth of the universe we inside that volume. Um, but in all probability, I would say probably your limit's going to be about this supercluster, maybe, you know, maybe an area 10 times that. Hard to say for sure, though. And next we have a question from Elizabeth Davis. If we ever develop teleportation... Could it be used to move buildings or even to take the top of a mountain and move it into a lake to create a new island? That's a good question. Um, The thing about teleportation or wormhole technology is that it tends to be, uh, you know, what we picture in books or in sci-fi usages tends not to be as much as what the physics would tell us would happen. But that's based on this or that individual theory. Like, we'll say, oh, that's not how wormholes work. I say, well, that's how... Wormhole, specifically the Einstein-Rosen bridge walks, right? That's very different than some of the other models for wormholes. But um, one of the ideas you tend to have in your head with something like a wormhole is, yes, you could dump matter out of it. If it's just acting as a kind of classic Stargate portal, you could stick one end of it inside of a uh, molten planet, you know, uh, the core, and the rest of it inside a bit of an ocean and just dump lava in there and make yourself a new island. Or you could dump something from the center of the sun into some other place and use that to heat a planet up where you put a little orbiting wormhole around a planet to sun, shine the sun on it. But um, that's not how wormholes in the classic math case would work. For instance, I can take a wormhole, have a flat like this, and another one here, and have a ball that falls from here down to this hole, pops back up through the top and falls again, and should just keep speeding up. And you say, oh, well, that's a perpetual motion machine. But if you actually run the math on it, rather just the concept, it actually will lose speed as it gets back to the top again. So it just reset every time, and thus does end up breaking thermodynamics. And there's a lot of cases like that where it just wouldn't work the way we'd expect it to. So, Barry On says, any idea if you'll ever touch on the Scharnhurst effect? I'll admit it's at least, it's likely to be the least interesting method of faster than light travel. Um, okay, so the Scharnhurst effect is the idea that in, in the vacuum or in a perfect condition, the speed of light is, say, the speed of light in a vacuum. We talk about that speed as opposed to a speed in air, which is a little bit slower, or a speed moving through glass. Well, a speed of light in a vacuum has a refractive index of, um, actually, it'll be zero or one, but basically no refractive index. It should be a zero. And you have a negative refract, you know, uh, index, so it would actually go faster than the speed of light. And inside something like a Casimir effect situation where you're supposed to have something that's lower pressure than even a vacuum of nothingness, the idea then would be that you have it moving faster than the speed of light in there. And this has been proposed and discussed, and it's debated as to whether or not it works. The problem is that to test this, using our current ability to use the Casimir effect for that, uh, isn't enough for us to actually be able to measure. I think I can't uh, remember off the top of my head, but I want to say it's like 
we expected currently to raise the speed of light if that effect worked as it was suggested by something like one trillion trillion trillionth higher than it currently is so hard to measure um and if it is the case yes that would work though that'd be more of a case like a false vacuum where it wasn't really the real speed i think it would just be a little bit higher and it's not the sort of thing i expect to let you go you know across stars in, in minutes or days as opposed to maybe just one percent faster or something like that so we have a, a question as well from glenn kooky i'm very interested in the economic politics of the future if we can feed the population does it mean we do feed the population hmm um you know that's that is one of those ones i can't actually answer because the idea they are i have um a population that i have the technology to feed more of does it actually make sense to keep feeding them uh in the case where someone for instance couldn't afford or whatever it is and the assumption was to say is well of course but others might say well no they're not paying me i don't want to we are having some technical difficulties. I guess the idea there being, I would like to think that we would continue to feed the population. At the same time, uh, those who remember the slightly more Malthusian days, like the 80s, we always went with the population bomb. You'd have folks saying, well, we shouldn't send food to Ethiopia, which was a country with starving time, because they'll just keep having more kids, and they need more food to come in. Um, I tend to think it's kind of a dark way to look at the universe, but regardless of whether I agree with that or not, there were a lot of people of that opinion. So that could end up being the case where you might have the population growing and growing, and we have the ability to produce the food for them, but people say, well, this just gets us stuck in a quagmire where we're always knocking over some new force or something like that to add room for it. But I think that it's it's generally the idea that you don't solve these problems from just one direction. You don't solve wood hunger by simply producing more food, but it's only one of the most important ways you go about doing that. But I can't give you a definite answer because that relies too much on humans. So... <clears throat> Apologies for the light in your eyeballs mm -hmm. there, but it does raise an interesting question here from Randy Smith. If a gamma ray burst hit the Earth, how far underground would you have to be to avoid radiation poisoning? Uh, probably just a few feet underground would be enough, to be honest. It's it's the thing is like if you're near a nuclear bomb blast when it goes off, and this is the number I'm remembering from my NBC courses in the military. You could be in a normal drainage ditch uh, for a few meters of dirt between you and the bomb. And even a big megaton one, if you're outside the blast radius where it's going to sweep you under, you're already outside where you're going to get radiation by just a few feet of dirt. It doesn't take much. All right. Now, truth be told, with a gamma ray burst, the biggest concern is that it's probably going to ionize the atmosphere and damage the ecosystem that way rather than blind you ever use looking at it. Well, that's positive for you then, I guess. <laughs> Reverend RV says, I research habitable zones. We are in the liquid water, ultraviolet, and photosynthetic habitable zone, among other. Would a collaboration of these zones combine to become a, quote, ultra great filter? Asked in a rare earth perspective. For instance, Europa is not the photosynthetic habitable zone. Um, you know, I am actually in the process of writing an episode on Hycean planets with the hydrogen ocean planets. Um, that will be coming out sometime in mid-February. And one of the points to start off that episode by making is that when we talk about these habitable Goldilocks zones, the loose idea is that it's where liquid water's got to be at. Um, but that's so wrong, and we know it's wrong. Right? It, it, it doesn't in of itself help us that much because a planet that's a little bit less massive or more massive than the Earth doesn't have the same habitable zone. Different composition of atmosphere, different habitable zone different type of star, because the light is less likely to ionize, I would say red versus more of a whiter star, becomes a problem. It, it changes these things around, and all assumes that the life is living on the surface and uses water rather than, say, ammonia. But at the same time, I think the idea that you need liquid water to have life is probably very likely. There may be, like, if there's a billion civilizations out there, maybe one that was off ammonia rather than water. I mean, that's a number poured out in thin air, but that tends to be such a bias against using something other than water out there in terms of just how easy or difficult it would be. And when you then add in other factors, you know, in terms of like how much sunlight do you get at what frequency so it doesn't just rip off all the hydrogen from your atmosphere as opposed to just melting off by steam yet but simply ionize it away, that's a very different type of great photo. And I think that we are probably going to find that the mass of a planet, the composition of a planet, and the type and the quantity of light it gets has a very narrow set of windows that do not favor most planets. Well, speaking of the Fermi Paradox, I noticed John Michael Godier is in the uh, in the chat section, so make sure you say hi to him, and uh, always a great guy to talk about the Fermi Paradox with. <laughs> 
Um, Nerdy Bird says, here to watch proud parents in action, laughing and crying face. Congratulations, Isaac and Sarah. Spell worries, count blessings, and let love be your guide. Thank you very much. <laughs> and Albert Jackinson, thank- good afternoon, Isaac and Sarah. Hi, Albert. Since we had a Thanksgiving this past week, that got me thinking, what holidays based on events would emerge as a result of a solar system colonization on other planets? You know, I've always been a little bit surprised that we haven't made a holiday out of Armstrong walking on the moon. Um, but uh, it might be one of those ones people celebrate down the road. I mean, there was, when we were going through that one list one time, we were before, like, it was December, there was like 50 holidays. I think in the Pussy My episode, but mm-hmm. Sarah and I have been looking through like lists of what upcoming holidays are there, and there was always more than there was days of the month. And it could be something small like this is National Agriculture Day or National Forestry Day or National Coffee Day. day. National Coffee International Day. Coffee day International Coffee Day had its own day. Yeah. Uh, Plain Coffee Day. day. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you you know, there's a day for almost everything when it comes to holidays. It's If it's important to you or something to memorize, there's no reason you can't have a holiday on every day. But in terms of big holidays, that you know, we, we would assume by default, and, you know, it's not going to be special insight on this, I would think that, you know, if the day the first thing went into space would be Sputnik, or the day that Armstrong walked on the moon, or the day that somebody lands on Mars their actual feet, these are likely to be days that humanity recognizes for a long time to come, as are all the classic holidays we already have. I don't think any of them are going anywhere. I mean, who wants to get rid of a holiday? And then you'll have other ones like, you know, on Alpha Centauri, hey, this is the day that we reach the heliopause around the solar system, and then these are the days that we land on Alpha Centauri planet C versus Alpha Centauri gas giant moon D, and so forth, they each have their founding days. I notice you're picking, like, all happy days like we're finding something as opposed to oh, yeah. comet wiped out half of my yeah. planet day <laughs> that, that, that probably, <laughs> and that's probably a good one to have there too yeah i think you would certainly have days that celebrated uh you know poor horrible i don't really think of that as a holiday mm-hmm. but several seven days day of remembrance yeah the day of remembrance or 9 11 and uh you know those are other days like that so one be like if a gamma ray burst hit the planet yeah that would probably qualify I don't know what you call that, but, you know, Black Wednesday, maybe, but it would be bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but things like that, an asteroid strike. Um, you we know, met the, aliens today. <laughs> yeah, the, the day the aliens arrived, that could be, uh, I would say that could be either a day of celebration or a day of remembrance or both. Because, like, they might, you know, some people might wash them quite gladly as great allies, but others they will crush their foot, you know, booted feet, and so they're going to view it differently. Um, although the important thing about any holiday is if everybody who celebrates it isn't around anymore, it probably doesn't get continued, let alone get its own cards. So. <laughs> All right. Seven sixty-fourths. Thank you for your super chat. Mm-hmm. Is it possible for an incredibly large and incredibly ancient creature to operate on the gravitational force who see Earth as their, quote, dragon's egg? Hmm. Um... I mean, the reference there would be Robert L. Forward's um, novel Dragon's Egg, which is a great one. Um, he was looking at the concept of whether or not life working on the nuclear forces scale rather than what we'd be more the electrical chemical scale could live on the surface of a a, um, a neutron star where things are so dense that I'm probably going to be off by a couple orders of magnitude. This coffee cup would weigh as much as like a... A lot more than an aircraft carrier, I don't, but very heavy, right? Uh, but things are very fast there, too, so that you have a civilization emerge, and over the course of a few minutes, it would go from cavemen to, you know, uh, spacefaring. Um, the flip side of that, of course, would be something that worked on a very small scale. And, um, you know, when you look at the, the, the structure of the universe, uh, the common analogy we all make uh, is, wow, that looks a lot like neurons. You know, at the, the large scale about about the billion light year scale it really does look like a you know photograph of a, a chunk of brain right now that's coincidental probably i assume but uh you know that's you could also be compared to like soap bubble walls but um you could have something that operate on that kind of time scale but size tends to be very linear to reaction time there's something nick bostrom talks a lot about in his uh book super intelligence is the idea that if you are at one tenth of scale your experience is generally going to go about 10 times faster Whereas you're 10 times bigger, you're going to experience things usually more of a tenth of speed. So, very slow existence, but it's possible. I just don't think the universe will be old enough yet to allow that. Are you familiar with the three-body problem? Yeah, yeah. We have an episode coming up on, on, well, some years back we did an episode on dog force theory. It was our first bonus episode that we actually did on the show. 
the pre-course of the Sci-Fi Sundays that we started right after that. And it was on the short side, I didn't talk about it too much, and mostly focused on game theory. This is the uh, novel by Six and Lou, uh, the second novel in this, um, the second novel was being the Dark Force Theory in his three-body problem series, Remembrance of Earth, um, which I do not like the audiobook for. If anyone's wondering why it's ever been a book of the month, is the audiobooks, I didn't like the narrator for that one. Good book series, but the problem is not a good form of paradox solution. We all, because it's been getting talked about a lot more, the book, redoing that episode, and we're coming out in January, I think it is, it's, um, was it Dark Force, Hostile Aliens, and the Universe, uh, but... Um, there we're going to look at the concept a little bit more, less mathematically, because that's always what I regret about that original episode. So, um, but uh, it's a decent enough Fermi Paradox concept for a book. It does not, in my opinion, actually make much sense as a Fermi Paradox solution, though. Um, Scary, though. Okay, so so that was actually leading up to a question, though. But the, oh. <laughs> but the, the super chat... Sal Sarara, thank you. Mm -hmm. And he would like everyone to know that there's a potential spoiler when you answer the question. So if anyone hasn't been familiar with three-body problem question, um, when you answer the question, he wanted them to know there would be a potential spoiler. (laughs) This whole show is spoilers. Go ahead. (laughs) Why did the uh, Trislorians not know about Earth if they lived on Proxima Centauri? Because the book wouldn't work very well if they did. That that is it. (laughs) It's kind of like, you know, why, why did X, Y, or Z happen in an almost a fictional plot? It doesn't make any actual sense. I, I, but that has nothing to do with the overall quality of the book. Like, as an example, Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. Beautiful even series. I love the first three books. The sequels get a little weaker. But it's the classic of sci-fi. It makes no sense at all. Psychohistory is mathematically nonsensical. Dune, my favorite movie, the second greatest sci-fi novel series of all time, in my opinion, it's all about the idea that a civilization that has cheap inter, you know, intergalactic travel and suspensor fields and laser beams is somehow short of water, the most abundant molecule out there besides hydrogen or helium. But it's a great book. And Endor's Game, the third most popular, usually speaking, the whole idea there is that for some reason a 10-year-old boy or 12-year-old or was is going to be a great admiral of a fleet and able to control it better than any adult, even to the point where he doesn't even need to know what's going on in reality. To better command that makes no sense strategically. Great series, so. <laughs> All right, Skintward hint, uh, Hinticles. Hi Isaac, love your bolo tie. Any thoughts on the future of clothing design and manufacture? I hope we shift away from mass-produced fast fashion to more made-to-order models overall. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on Amazon, um, who is technically a sponsor of the show, um, there's the feature you can have like your car. It's programmed in, so it will make sure you only order components that fit that call, like windshield wiper blades the right size. Uh, and they do that for your clothing to some degree, too. You put your size in, so it's knowing what your size is. Uh, I want you to imagine an app on your phone where you can scan yourself in, right? Scan your foot, scan your, you know, your, your foot very accurately with your phone, takes the photos, and now you have the perfectly designed shoe for you. Or maybe it's the, the 20 of those they make for the people who have the same foot as you, and it's in a factory somewhere, they get sent to you. This thing fits you perfectly. Uh, the gloves that fit you perfectly. It's not size A or size 9. It fits you perfectly. Um, that is always better. Right? And we haven't really done tailors as much or cobblers, things like that. That's kind of a little bit out of fashion in favor of mass-produced that we simply make many sizes. But we can get very specific with these things. And I think that is where we're going to see that go to. It's not going to be order one of the 13 or 14 size zone range. It's going to be, I want that short. And it will just send you the, one that's the right size for you today. You know? I think a lot of women would like to be able to uh, pick different patterns for yeah. their clothes and have them fit more comfortably than whatever you can find that was left at the store. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we were doing t-shirts, and we temporarily don't have merch because that's getting slowed down. We're like, when are you going to do show merch again? And I said, we'll have that back out at some point. But one of the first requests we had from female audience members was, please get women's shaped t-shirts and not ones that are just guy sizes only small. So we... <laughs> There's a bit of a difference. Custom tailored clothing, that's what the future's going to be. Smart, cheap, easily available. Bees Cake Factory. You often talk about power beaming satellites, but how do you actually beam power through space? Uh, well, that part's the easy bit. Uh, beaming through space is, is, is the part that's more straightforward than beaming it through the atmosphere, which is the real problem. And we'll beam it down to where people are at. Um, we, usually what we do is we can forward it into Rectenna's, uh, well, sorry, excuse me, We'll convert it into microwaves, which is a fairly straightforward and efficient process. You take solar power or solar thermal and see that 
episode for a bit more details, the power satellites episode. And then that gets converted into microwave, same as you use for your Wi-Fi or your microwave. And we just beam that down as a fairly tight beam down to a receiver called a rectenna as opposed to an antenna. And those have an 85% conversion rate of from, you know, stuff being beamed into them into electricity rather than heat, which makes them far more efficient than anything else I can think of. <laughs> They're very good at that. And those go through the atmosphere very well. The mistake people tend to make about microwaves is they think, well, microwaves, don't those get absorbed by water? And the answer is not really. Um, we have materials that reflect microwaves very well, and they align what's inside your microwave. And typically, a microwave could pass through an area and not get absorbed by it uh, at all. But if you bounce it around a billion times, it will usually get absorbed by something. And, of course, light moves so fast that one second inside your microwave is already bounced around a billion times. So it is, it is the difference there between that and, say, your lower-powered and non-reflected um, Wi-Fi signal. But uh, you need huge rectennas for that, especially because we want to heat the signal to, I think the ocean limit is 100 watts per meter squared. We don't want any signals higher than that for safety's sake. You could probably get away with higher than that. That's probably more pad than it needs to be. But that also means you only beam it down 100 watts per meter squared, which is great. But not really that much better than just sticking a solar panel there would be, except that it works at nighttime too. So that raises an interesting question. I think it ties in from Cletus223. For power satellites, how could you prevent all of the power dissipating away by the time it reaches the Earth? Mm-hmm. The attenuation is not that high in the atmosphere. And, well, there's always some attenuation of anything passing through air. Uh, it's just not very high for microwaves. That's why we can get away with using it to detect clouds. Um, it goes through so much air without very little diminishment. Um, through space, there's none at all except that it spreads out. Um, and again, like laser beams, beams, things in general, we look at them and think, oh, it's a really long sonar. They are not. They are just a very condensed ray. If you take a little laser beam and point it at the moon, not that you would see something that dim, but it would be a very wide spot when it got there. Depending on the beam, it might be a football field size thing. So uh, when you're talking about orbital power satellites, that really doesn't matter, just as long as the spot is no bigger than your receiver on the ground, which can be the size of a little stadium. If you're trying to beam it in from the sun, though, that becomes a little bit more tricky, but it is manageable. When it gets trickier is trying to send that beam to a spaceship half a light year away. That gets hard enough that it might not be viable outside of on paper. And D. Kagoon wants to know, if a nickel beam hit Earth, would it kill everyone? And if so, how long would it take to do so? Nickel beam? Is it nickel? N-I-C-O-L-O? Yes. Okay. Nickel, and I think it actually is probably pronounced nickel. I've always pronounced it nickel Dyson, but I remember that's actually not how... The gentleman's name is James Nickel. Nickel. He is actually active online, so I don't know if the proper pronunciation of his Nickel Beam or Nickel Beam. But the Nickel Dyson Beam concept is you take an entire star's output or a good fraction of it, turn into a beam, and then blow something up. What was the question again? Um, would it kill everyone if it hit the Earth, and how long would it take? Um, it would depend on the power of the sun and what percentage it was. If we assume a 100% conversion of the sun's power, into one beam focused on Earth and just a heat beam, it would take seven days to destroy the planet in the sense of completely vaporizing it, Death Star style. To just kill everyone on the planet, 12 hours, because you got you probably let the planet like torn and spin and peel it like an apple as it went. Ouch. Beam. Yeah. That sounds beautiful. <laughs> I wonder if I'm a uh, yeah. sun You might be zipping it up and down like that, that, just you know, from pole to pole as it spun. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because um, the dense what's coming in, the more fatal it's going to be on those spots. But 12 hours, maybe less. You could do it faster with certain other things, but that's you know, fast enough. Uh, yeah. Not much time to prepare should that happen. And over 12 hours of the beam that powerful would be enough to take the oceans right off while you're at it, too. <laughs> Gravitasini Maneuver says, Hi, Isaac. Greetings from a huge fan in Belgrade, Serbia. I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. What are your opinions on a solar gravity lens telescope, and do you think that we'll build it in the recent future? Um, I think you'd probably be a little bit more likely to build something like a telescope that David Kipping suggested, which is same concept, but where you're more using the lensing of your own planet to enhance the signal. But yeah, I think we'll definitely build that at some point. Lensing is just too handy. Um, and we already do it to some degree using certain galaxies to look around other galaxies, for instance. Um, but it's very handy, though it is one of those... Um, lucky side effects kind of situation. It's not as controllable as being able to just point the telescope wherever you want it. So it has its limitations, but yeah, I think so. So, Namreg Surna, without generating a magnetic field, can we replenish Mars' atmosphere 
faster than the sun blows it away, such as vaporizing rock, mining, etc. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the rate of loss is hard to predict at the moment because we don't really have a lot of examples besides Earth. We've got models, but those models are not perfect, and we have exactly one case we can really look at. Even try to look at the loss of something like Venus or Jupiter, it's very hard to actually determine how much loss there is. Um, but, you know, we might be talking about, well, it loses a few megatons a day. Well, it sounds like a lot. That's huge, right? A few million tons of air a day. At the same time, that's a relatively low leakage rate compared to the actual mass of an atmosphere. Like, I want to say Earth's atmosphere is uh, 10 to 15 tons, which uh, would be about a quadrillion tons, something in that zone. Um, and in that kind of case, you know, if you're losing a megaton a day and you can do a quadrillion, was that like a billion days or something like that before you have to lose it? So very slow rate. I mean, if you're planning to terraform a planet in less than a billion years, that means you had equipment in place to generate atmosphere faster than we lose yet, say, a megaton a day. And I don't think that would be the rate you'd be losing it under Mars' gravity unprotected even. So, But the proof will be in the pudding. We need to actually find some worlds that are busy losing atmospheres around other stars. So a sim somewhat similar question, Clash says, is creating a magnetic field for Mars actually necessary? I know the recent studies have found that the magnetic field actually accelerated the at atmosphere lost, so low gravity was actually the cause. Um, that's debated. There's just some indications there with that one. I still hold the idea the magnetic field lowers it, uh, the rate of loss. Uh, but at the end of the day, you are getting some loss directly from solar wind coming in from the sun, for instance. And I tend to think that we put something like that, like an artificial magnetic field between Earth and the sun at some point, too, just to help to cut down the radiation in the Van Allen belts and around Earth. And we'll be doing a lot of stuff up there that does not want to get irradiated. That might be hundreds of years down the road, but it's doable. Um, do you need it to terraform Mars? No. Uh, would you need to terraform the moon? Probably. But then in, there's always, what do we call terraforming and what do we call paraterraforming? If I just put a big glass bubble around Mars, or its equivalent, then I don't need a magnetic field because the atmosphere is not going anywhere at all. And in that case, you know, there's no problem. But there's always alternative methods of doing these things. Um, about the only thing I would say wouldn't be worth it is to actually try to spin the core of Mars up because... Just because that's how our planet does it with a big burning metal core of radioactive metals doesn't mean that's the best way to generate a magnetic field. That's not how we generate magnetic fields anywhere else on this planet. We, we have much better ways to do it. <laughs> so uh, thank you for your super chat, Wilk. How would you consider a return of medieval feudal system where specific planets belong to, quote, modern nobles, as opposed to developing a new or better society system that we would be going backwards instead? Um, I think it would be decently likely. The thing is, a lot of these things can overlap. It's, it's really popular in science fiction. Um, Battletech comes to mind as, as setting for they had a lot of that, but it's hardly an exception. I would say probably the most common trope in science fiction in terms of governments is either the giant empire, uh, the federation type thing, or your feudal warlords and with the various noble houses. Which doesn't, you know, you can have aristocracy without feudalism. They are not the exact same thing. Um, in fact, you could argue the one kind of follows from the other. But any number of this could work. Like, let's say, let's say me and Sarah and a dozen other people, you know, get rich by winning the lottery and we help build an Onigosono. And we're like, okay, this is all Onigosono. We'll sell 10% of it off or 20% of it off to people, but we're just going to keep our, our chunk of it as our own area. And our kids can go live on those bits and pieces too. But I own that forever. What exactly is the difference between me having built that thing and some duke or baron from the past, except that they just conquered that for someone else, whereas we built this thing from scratch? And in that kind of context, we got people who might live for centuries and who would have very definite knowledge of who related from what. You know, there's no past time or who previously used to own it. It's all recorded from the day it got built. Um, it's not that hard to see that happening again. Same with uh, my, these, these cyberpunk examples. You always got these corporations where there are big, powerful families going on, and it, it can happen pretty easily. You know, I think in almost any system, whether or not it will, my guess is no. I, I would say people kind of don't really like to go that way for governance, so I would not expect it to happen uh, organically that often. Though it's very common for people to be in the same profession as their parent too. So you always could have someone whose dad was X or mom was X, and same as them. But I don't think that humanity is really aiming to go back to an inherited power structure. But, you know, again, it's common science fiction. It could be something that we 
they have happened quite a lot. There's a hundred billion solar systems out there in this galaxy alone for us to colonize. I'm sure some of them will try that. So, uh, Chaos Alchemist 10, Isaac, did you get a chance to observe that asteroid that fell over the Great Lakes area on the 19th, or was there not enough advance warning for you to see it, and was it close to where you live? Uh, I, that's, this is the first I've heard of that. It might have been why we were seeing so many shooting stars over the last few weeks, though. That could be, yeah. There was a lot of meteor showers this time of year, too. I'm trying to remember the name of some of them. I, it's interesting, is back in college, when I was in grad school at Kent State, I got the fun task of running our observatory on Friday nights for public showings. And um, at, at that time, I knew like every constellation by, by heart and every shower memorized. We had a dome that was computerized. You could just click on a constellation or a star or search it, and it would rotate everything to the exact right location. And all you do is fine-tune a little bit for viewing on the focus. And after doing that, I forgot the names of virtually every constellation. And I'd like think twice to spot the between like Mars and Jupiter these days. So um, <laughs> I should probably get back into actually doing astronomy properly at some point. So mm. I think we should take yeah. a little break here. If you have additional questions that you would like to be answered, please drop them in the chat and we'll be back here in just a couple minutes. minutes. So while we're on break for a few minutes grabbing a drink and a snack, I want to thank our show's longtime cover artist Jacob Greigel as he goes on indefinite hiatus from artwork in general and this show after 6 years of making covers for the show. He's usually done the cover all just a couple days before the episode airs, which is why you often see different covers during the livestream previews or episodes mentioning upcoming ones, but he was nice enough to give me a couple months worth before he departed and went on break. Those early versions I usually make myself, either borrowing and altering public domain sci-fi images or combining them or even occasionally just doing them myself, and many of those are quite nice but never as good as Jacob's and of many different styles, I've left them up today along with the ones he did to contrast them. Jacob is an amazing talent as all show regulars know, and our first and longest running volunteer on SFIA, and with Thanksgiving right behind us, I am grateful he lent us so much of his time and work, and I will keep everyone updated should he have any neat projects he'd like to share down the road. Speaking of changes, as we mentioned last livestream, Sarah and I got approved to bring home three little kids who we are aiming to formally adopt after the required waiting period and are staying with us as foster kids till then. As of the time I'm writing this show break, they are set to move in about a week before this livestream, and so this is our first livestream since then and I'm keeping my fingers crossed they're not howling through the studio knocking cameras over or jumping into the shots, and if they are, please bear with us. Also, a question that comes up a lot, especially when we have a new film or TV adaptation of classic sci-fi and fantasy, is if I would do an episode critiquing a show, and while I often do give this or that bit of sci-fi a shout out or poke for how well they did or did not cover some concept, it's not really what our show aims at. Not saying I would never do one, it's not antithetical to the show, so if I feel compelled to praise or blast some show at full episode length, I probably would. But even then, giving a whole episode over to some other show or book or franchise is probably more likely to take on a form of playing with a key concept, as we have with episodes like The Prime Directive on Star Trek, and whatever franchise inspired them generally fades to the background as I write on the concept, which typically has a lot of other aspects or variations that the original bit of fiction didn't cover that we can reflect on. I also tend to be really pokey about canon changes in classic stories, I understand and sympathize with adaptations needing some breathing room, but tend to feel that needs to be minimal and justified, and probably would go off on rants about it rather than good upbeat fun discussions I prefer. Also there's always some great channels on YouTube that do more story specific deep dives like Quinn's Ideas that handle both story canon of classics and setting realism, which is definitely worth some views and subscribes if you're looking for some good solid geek fuel after this livestream. Speaking of geek fuel, I'm probably about done getting my coffee refilled for part 2 of our show, and hopefully we'll have time and questions enough for another lightning round at the end of today's show, so make sure to get your questions in the moderators as we get back to the show and more of your questions. And we're back. Alright, so uh, what do we got next? Well, we have a question here from Moontaman. Has any thought been given to the idea of colonizing the Cooper Belt of other stars? Right. Well, maybe it. Maybe that's what it's meant. Yeah. 
Kuiper belt of the other stars via space colonies. This would make any star viable for colonization. Yeah, um, every star is colonizable for. I mean, like, you get some of the, I want to say, population three stars, the ones that are really low metallicity that might be also extra galactic. There's a chance that that might be very tricky to actually colonize because you could even stall that much metal out of that one. But uh, every star should be colonizable some degree or another. You might have to import some of the raw materials, but the power is still there. And you can always start doing artificial fusion if you need to. But yes, Kuiper belts are probably one of the first places you colonize another solar system. Um, if you come into some place and it's like a red dwarf, um, you're already pretty close to the center of the system for its Kuiper belt would be at that point because it's very tiny. But other places you might do a gas giant with tight packed moons. We have an upcoming, well, kind of a loose trilogy of episodes for January on interstellar colonization strategies forming strategies and then the concept of turning an asteroid into a spaceship which kind of looks through some of that so it was a really good question for that we'll be looking at that in january <laughs> so um sonabella says if the many worlds interpretation is correct could we have faster than light via wormholes as long as the mouths are in different timelines created in the moment that it's turned on to prevent breaks in causality if you got a mini war situation, you don't really ever have breaks in causality. Um, you know, we were talking about this in the uh, Infinite Improbability Issues episode some years back. The the episode that also was nicknamed the Quantum Cheeseburger. <laughs> uh, um, let's say that there is a universe. Any anything in theory which is possible can happen in a mini war situation. It must happen. Therefore, it is possible that if I push a button at the exact same coincidental moment. Uh, one atom of various materials going to turn another atom of various other materials. But it is also possible, finitely likely, though insanely improbable, that when I push a button, um, a tree sitting in front of me will suddenly turn into a blue police box, uh, out of which a man is going to step, fully formed, who calls himself the doctor, and has atrocious taste in clothing, uh, at least from the town Baker era, and it thinks he has memories of having just traveled here from another timeline. But... These things are what happen when you have infinite improbabilities. You have somebody who literally was thinking themselves as a time traveler because they've done it thousands of times successfully, just by coincidence. However insanely improbable that is, there are places like that where that would happen. Now, I tend to be on the least small end boat of mini worlds is wrong. I don't like mini worlds. I do not like the concept, but it's one of those interpretations of quantum that's more popular. Uh, probably tied with Copenhagen these days, but there's a lot of philosophical problems with many wars that I'm not a big fan of. As a model, it works as well as any other ones that predicts what's supposed to happen, but it doesn't have the causality issue to it because there's just no causality in that kind of context anymore. Brett Hagee says, so hypothesizing that all of this is an ancestral simulation, mm -hmm. what do you think is the best avenue of research to prove or disprove it? Um, hmm. hmm. There was thinking of a conversation I was having with somebody who was, um, uh, well, we'll say that for another time. Um, how would you go about disproving something in a system where if you're a smart programmer, you've set up a flag so that you don't want people to disprove it that says whenever somebody thinks of X, um, tell them no. Right? We get this brain-in-a-jar idea of approaching reality. We say, well, I'd be in a simulation like in the Matrix, but everything I've experienced in my brain is my own. Right? No. They're simulating you. They can read your brain. They know what's going on in your brain. And if you have X opinion, they don't have to try to, you know, make things work again. They can pause the simulation, go back a second so you didn't have the idea anymore, and erase it. And then solve it back up again. So you're only ever going to actually have that work because it's not just they have to find out when you said it for the first time. You thought, oh, I might be a simulation. Is that they can go back after you've already published a book explaining how it works to everybody else in the simulation and say, oh, wow, that didn't work out well. Pause. When's our last backup? Okay, okay, go back to the one from 2022. Let's start back up from there. That's the problem with that kind of thing in terms of proving it. You can only prove something like that if that's actually the goal of the programmers or they are very lazy, stupid, or incompetent, which is usually not implied by anyone who would go to the level of detail necessary to make a simulation like the place around us. Some interesting points. Yeah. <laughs> Jack Brown says, Do you think there will be any reason to conduct interstellar trade in the future? Meaning trade between two or more K2 civilizations. Sure. Um, 
I have discovered the formula for portal gun fluid for Rick and Morty in the Alpha Centauri system. I'm going to trade that to uh, this system back here on Planet Hollywood, the literal one that was built in the year 2300, where they make the best movies. And we're going to trade the one information for a non-stop stream of you know the brand new blockbuster movies that come out for free, uh, paid for with that portal gun fluid formula. That's trade. It's going at light speed, right? Um, in terms of more exotic stuff, will you be able to buy a bottle of wine that was made around Alpha Centauri and have it shipped back here? Yeah, that's probably possible, you know, because again, you might only have one a billion people who are willing to pay that kind of outrageous price for shipping, but in the K2 civilization, um, it might not be quite such an outrageous price, and you don't have one a billion people there, you have a billion billion people, so that means there's a billion people who want to buy that bottle of wine, you know, or that, you know, Action Comics 27 from the Sirius system, or whatever it was, that those relatively unique items, will there ever be heavy trade? slowly perhaps you could send bulk metals from one source to another at less than light speed and you buy them millennia out you know but yeah i think they'll be trade so andre carter says why is earth and sci-fi always either destroyed or forgotten or the head of an empire that rules all of their extrasolar co colonies with an iron fist did i do i thought i did an episode on that recently well, Oh, you know, that's actually practically the startup line for the Sci-Fi Sunday episode this upcoming December, <laughs> uh, which is our first episode in 4K. So I'm trying, uh, you know, so many of the visuals we do in the episodes are actually in 4K resolution, and I've always rendered it at 1080, which is kind of amusing. I've been rendering the show in 1080p uh, for back before I even actually had a 1080p mod or some years back. Um, but I recently, at the request, decided to render one of them in 4K anyway because there's so many clips, and it was a better resolution, so I'm trying for a little while. So it takes a lot more rendering time, and we don't have that many clips of it, so it'll probably just be a thing we do in a more limited sense. But that first 4K episode, Interplanetary Civil Wars, sorry, Planetary Civil Wars, we'll discuss that topic in a bit more detail. Uh, though, in this kind of context from a storyline, um, if you're going to have a, a story set on the fringes of an empire, Earth makes a good center for that civilization, uh, or a distant place you're not really around, or if you're looking at a dystopian thing, then Earth is the setting for that, because... If I were to do a dystopian future of a new solar empire, why not go ahead and set it on Earth as the most familiar place, as with some other world? So it's it's kind of in it's kind of like also asking um, why do so many heroes happen to be orphans? You know, says well if, if the hero is calling out their parents for advice, you know, <laughs> it seems to diminish them a little bit. So I think that's part of it is if you need something far from Earth as a setting, you also want to divorce them from Earth as the main plot point of interest too. So that should be Sunday, December 11th, right? Yep. Okay. All right. And we have a question from Connor. No, I just realized that I don't have the thing clicked up there to actually show the episode cycling through. <laughs> Whoops. Well, we have a question here from Connor Geschweiler. Hey, Isaac, can you please do an episode about super soldier technology in the near future? Okay. Um, now we got those cycling through. Um, actually, that's not a bad suggestion. Um... Hmm. I'm not sure. Uh, we did one on Power Armor and Battlesuits a while back, but let me think on that one. <laughs> if if someone wants to, who, who's who's not me, wants to add that to the feed so I can help remember that, because what I remember doing the show stands go away five seconds after the live stream so forth, I might actually do that episode. That seems like a neat topic. Okay. All right, I've got to scan through here. Maybe we should do an episode pull again sometime soon. Go ahead, yeah. so. A, a big shout-out to Sindri for helping to send me the questions. As always, we are grateful for everyone that helps pull these live streams together. <laughs> and... Uh, I think we're waiting on more questions to get through. He might be away from this machine for the yeah, moment. Yeah, I'm trying to. Some of them are... Let's see. Let me click the thing back over to me for a moment. Well, we're waiting for more of those to get loaded up there for you to find them. Uh, for folks who are wondering why I don't have the little kids on the screen, and since some folks who actually asked about that, um, in Ohio, which is where Sarah and I are at, for you to actually adopt any kids from Ohio, you have to wait a six-month period while they're living with you, while they are technically in foster care. During that time, you're not allowed to produce photographs of them to the public, or even their names, which is why we're not saying hi to them beyond that right now. Uh, they are watching one of the other rooms, I believe. But... Um, that is obviously one of those tricky things to discuss in much detail. I'm looking forward to be able to put them on screen at some point and say hello, but that's at least six months out. Um, as to the system, it was just one of those things that Sarah and I always talked about was 
planning to have kids normally, and we still do, and also to adopt at some point too. And so we're getting movie of that since I think March was about March. We started the paperwork in January. Yeah, so it, it, it took a long time. They were not the joking when they yeah. said a paperwork pregnancy. Nine yeah. months and counting. About nine months. And we figure we've got go. another nine months, and I figure that since there are three of them, we have a nine-month buffer zone. Yes, I count triplets. <laughs> yeah, except you're only supposed to have nine months for triplets, not yeah. 27. All right, we have a super chat here from Joel Dawson. Thank you, Joel. I have heard that Ohio has more astronauts than any other state. That's right. That is true, yes. What about it, it living in Ohio makes them want to leave Earth, and how are they coaxed into returning? Well, you know, there's many ways that one could look at this. Um, I, I was going to say, we don't want to leave. We no. just are very inquisitive people. For Area of Ashville, I once unintentionally coined a, a temporary model the place had was that our biggest export was our kids because we uh, had a declining population um, and one of the Rust Belt areas, it gets called. But uh, for Ohio, we've always been, you know, the population has gone up in Ohio every decade, but we are an area that tends to have lost its relative population because we haven't grown as much. And it's because we have high enough both rate, but people tend to wander off to other places, often sunnier ones. But um, as to why in Ohio, though, that's a little bit easier. Uh, it is called the birthplace of aviation for a reason. And I actually used to walk next to the hill that uh, uh, some of that stuff was going on at it, right past the Air Force Base in Dayton. And, uh, you know, Neil Armstrong's here, John Glenn was our center for a long time. And uh, it's obviously, it's always been an important part of the local uh, I'm not sure what you call that. The, uh, we're very proud of, of our I was say, probably technology. the patriotism because yeah. it is something that's taught in every, it, it, mm-hmm. it's expected to be taught in every school and then every kid kind of grows up with this concept of, wow, we had an astronaut that walked on the moon from Ohio. Maybe I could do that too. Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty big deal. So, um, yeah, I'd say, and, and to represent our area, since Sarah literally represents our area in the House of Assembly, uh, the General House of Reps, um, we are very smug about our role in aerospace for Ohio, <laughs> and thus we tend to encourage people to go into aerospace, which includes astronauts. Very true. But so, probably mostly coincidence. Hey, Isaac, <laughs> we recently found out that there might not be enough carbon dioxide on Mars to terraform it. If that is true, are there any alternative methods for terraforming that planet? Thanks. Uh, well, the main thing about carbon dioxide is you can make it. Um, you know, if there's not enough carbon dioxide there to just release it for terraforming purposes, and, and I would agree that is not the case. Um, there's a lot of carbon there, and you always bring in more carbon. Uh, it's what's the fifth most common uh, element in the universe, or sixth maybe. It goes hydrogen, helium, oxygen, and I want to say neon or fluorine after that, then carbon and nitrogen. But very common stuff. You always bring more in. But I don't think that's the right way to terraform that planet. Um, for one thing, um, you know, we debate what kind of effect carbon dioxide has on the environment, and there's a lot of unknowns there, but one of the things that we have tested more is what it does to human brains above a certain concentration. And I think it's around 1,000 parts per million. You start getting a little bit more lethargic, and when it gets about, you, know, you get a little bit dumber. And so you have classrooms where they weren't doing good ventilation, and the students were always getting kind of tired. It was because, well, it wasn't well ventilated. You got a bunch of people breathing in there, and an old heating system was blowing carbon dioxide, so the students really wore getting dumber while the class went on, as opposed to what you know professors usually say, which it seemed like my students were getting dumber as the class went on. So it was true. <laughs> so I don't think that you necessarily want to terraform Mars to have a really high concentration of carbon dioxide. Do you think uh, this is better? Don Archangel says, can we just crash Europa into Mars and fix everything? Increased mass, hold core atmosphere, water, and maybe restart spinning at the core. Well, <laughs> yeah, I... I, I I was just thinking of an episode of Futurama where there's, uh, I can't remember which planet it was, maybe Neptune, where they were making it the uh, parallel for Appalachia, West Virginia, or Deliverance. Now, see, if you have a planet that's got a very high carbon dioxide level, they might come with some really bad ideas. Um, crashing Europa into Mars will not significantly increase its gravity because Europa has very little mass compared to Mars, let alone Earth. Um, it would take an insane amount of energy to move Europa there. Uh, and... Um, it would probably make the planet uninhabitable for many tens of thousands of years by just heat alone. You can only add mass so quickly to a planet for, you know, you heat them up when you do that. You know, it takes tons of rocket fuel to lift a ton of, of stuff into space by adding speed to it. Things that fall down, like asteroids, they pick up a lot of speed on the way down that gets released as heat energy. Uh, so it's kind of think of like, I'm going to add Europa 
as a giant ball of vodka fuel that I'm going to dump on top of Mars and set on fire. I'm not sure that's the best way to tear off of that planet to be habitable, although it would have the effect of warming up. That That is definitely true. So, um, DJ Dr Drac says, I suspect water scarcity isn't even a thing in the bigger solar systems with super-Earths. So, that isn't even a good, this isn't a good planet to harvest it from if you wanted to go that route. Uh, I'm going to assume that's a reference to the movie Oblivion, uh, which is another one of those examples of a film that I enjoyed from a storytelling perspective, like Inception, for instance, too, but which does not logically make a lot of sense. In that film, uh, the aliens are harvesting all of Earth's oceans, uh, specifically for fusion fuel, too, which is weird because they found around Saturn, which has so much more actual just regular old hydrogen and deuterium than you get out of our oceans, uh, which you still have to crack out the oxygen from anyway. Um, but, um, Stupid Aliens, I think that was the name of the episode I first discussed that it was Stupid Aliens. Um, you should never expect anywhere in the universe to be low on water. Again, the most common element in the universe is hydrogen, and the third most is oxygen. You, you will find water vapor just floating through space. It's never going to be rare. And the only place where it is going to be rare is on the surface of some inner planets. It will be so easy to truck it in from outside the fast line. I think that looks like we have answered the majority of questions here today. Mm -hmm. And I know you're... Yeah, my, my throat is probably going. I'm not sure I'm more scratchy or mumbly. Apologies again to everyone listening in the audience if, uh, if you're having problems understanding me today. On top of the usual speech impediments at home. Yep. I, I think the rest of it is uh, mostly comments. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Oops, I'm sorry. I found another super chat here that we might have mm -hmm. missed. Uh, super chat from Orange Hexagon Sun. Would it be possible to use a gamma ray laser into an optical prototype to see in the X-ray spectrum like Superman? Um, you know, the problem with a gamma ray laser is you actually have to be able to make one first. Um, even like the, the uh, oh, I'm having positive memory with this called Project Excalibur. That's when you set off a bomb-pumped laser where it's basically a nuke going off inside of a tube that turns into a laser for one second. That's in the X-ray range, not the uh, gamma range, because we don't really have anything that we know that reflects gamma rays. Um, the problem is if you can't actually reflect it, you can't make a laser out of it. Uh, if you could make a gamma ray laser or a gamma reflective material, then fusion becomes insanely easy. So it'd be something you'd very much like to have. But uh, while you could certainly use that to look through people, I'm sure you'd probably, I mean, there'd be a, you'd probably be able to find it and use a lot of other ways where you go, I'm looking at this person and say, oh, they seem to have cancer. I don't think gamma rays is something you want to aim someone's way to look through them like Superman, though. But I'd say microwaves would make a lot more sense. Now, if you're looking for the X-ray vision that, that Superman has, that's really more microwaves. And thank you, Albert Jackinson. He says, thank you for hosting today, Isaac. Great answers as always, and happy belated Thanksgiving. <laughs> happy Thanksgiving to you too, Albert. All right, well, if we don't have any oh, other questions. Oh, and uh, John Michael Godier is also uh, commenting on the chat today mm -hmm. as well. And we have quite a few people tuning in, saying they were late and they're going to watch it later. All right. Well, on that note, I will go ahead and end the stream so we can have everyone watch it later. Thank you, everyone, for putting up with me through the, uh, the voice today. And we will see you on Thursday for, I don't remember what the next episode is. <laughs> Look up there. It should be, would have been playing in the background for the last 20 minutes. So uh, we will see you on Thursday for Thursday's episode. <laughs> Until then, thank you for joining us and have a great week. <laughs>